Friends, I want to invite you now to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. This morning, we're going to look through the first 17 verses of Matthew's gospel at the way Matthew chooses to introduce his story about who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. Let me quickly remind you that we've provided Bibles within arm's reach for you in case you don't have one or didn't bring one with you today. You'll find what we're looking at here. There's a table of contents right at the front. It'll take you to Matthew's gospel. We're going to be looking at the first page of Matthew's gospel. And if you don't own a copy of the Bible, please take this one with you. We'd love it to be yours. And we'd love to talk to you about what you're going to hear today about Jesus. Now, If you found Matthew chapter 1, I want to first just invite you to stand with me in honor of God's word. I'm going to read the first 17 verses and then we'll dive into them together this morning. This is the word of the Lord. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac the father of Jacob and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim. And Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is God's word. You can be seated. If you made it through middle school English class or whatever they called it back in your day, you probably know about the importance of a good hook for whatever it is that you're writing. Whether it's an essay or a story or... Uh, a movie or even a song. It helps to have something at the top that draws people in and makes them interested. And even if you didn't pay that close of attention back in English class and never refined your own skills at crafting the perfect hook, you've certainly enjoyed them, right? In the stories that you've read. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Maybe the best, most famous hook of all time. Charles Dickens' Tale of Two Cities. 
Or how about the hobbit? Here's a hook for you. In a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. That's a sentence that does a lot of work. I mean, it brings you all the way down to the ground, like right down to earth, like literally (laughs) into the ground and puts you into the story. At the same time, it raises these questions. What's a hobbit? Why does a hobbit live in a hole in the ground? What sort of creature is this? And what's going to happen to him down there? Or maybe have you kids read Charlotte's Web? Raise your hand. Any kids out there read Charlotte's Web? How about this or maybe the best hook of all time? Where's Papa going with that axe? Said Fern to her mother as they were setting the table for breakfast. Out to the hog house, replied Mrs. Arable. Some pigs were born last night. That's amazing, isn't it? Even just the word axe sends a chill down your spine. You know, something's up and this doesn't look good. You're brought right into the mind of a kid right away, which makes the answer anything but comforting. Baby pigs and axe together just, no, that can't be right, can it? And so automatically you're in. What is going to happen here in this story? The text that I just read for you this morning is Matthew's hook into his story about the life of Jesus. I wonder how you'd begin the life of Jesus if you were in Matthew's shoes. If you knew you had his material to work with, where would you start? I mean, he's got angels, a lot of those. That'd be an interesting place to start. Or or even if you, maybe like from a more modern storytelling technique, you might start at the end and then do a flashback. I mean, you've got this amazing epic story he's gonna tell about Jesus on the way to and then hanging upon the cross. The moment of just deep, pathos and, 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 and emotion could have started there and then, and then explained how we got there only to pick it up with the death on the cross and move forward to the resurrection that'd be a cool way to do it but with Matthew sitting on all that rich material he starts out his story with a genealogy he decides to tell us that Hezron was the father of Ram, who was the father of Amminadab, who was the father of Nashon. Well, Merry Christmas, everybody. (laughs) Are you sleepy yet? (laughs) What is he doing here? For Matthew's Jewish audience, this was the hook they needed. This hook was perfect. They would have been all the way in. And with a little bit more looking from us, with a little closer attention to the details of what Matthew tells us here, I think this hook could have the same effect on you and me. Because written into this family tree is the hope of all the world. It's as universal and relevant to what we're longing for today as it was relevant to what they were longing for then. This morning, think of this morning as part one in a four-week series for December here in our, in our, in our gatherings where we're going to spend more time than we normally would talking about the birth of Jesus, where he came from, what he came to do, how the Old Testament helps us understand him. The next three weeks after today will actually be preached from Old Testament prophecies that Matthew uses when Matthew tells the story of Jesus' birth. We're going to grab the thing he quotes, but then take it from the place that it's quoted from and try to help you understand the the prophets in their original context so that then we can understand Jesus as, as his first hearers, as his first friends would have understood him. But today, today we look to how Matthew chooses to frame the entire story. Today we want to get oriented to the whole map all at once. And from this little hook, 
from this long list of names. I simply want to show you where Jesus came from, what Jesus came to do, and who Jesus came to save. There are three steps for this morning. Where Jesus came from, what Jesus came to do, who Jesus came to save. So point one, where Jesus came from. First thing this hook does for Matthew's story and for me and you is show us where Jesus came from. That he didn't pop down out of the sky, that he isn't an alien from some other planet. He came as a son. He came with a family treat. He came with a whole human history. To put it more specifically, Jesus came from God's history with Israel. That's where Jesus came from. Matthew, as I mentioned, was writing mostly to a Jewish audience, and he knew his audience, and he knew how to draw them in. Genealogies like this one were a big deal for Israel. They loved these, and they had good reason to. I mean, genealogies were a big part of their Old Testament scriptures, and even then, at this time, they were a big part of daily life, way more than our genealogies are. I mean, I, I know that there is a bit of a craze right now around genealogies, around family history, Maybe now, more than in the last hundred years, that stuff seems to have caught the public attention because we got DNA now. I guess we always had it, but now we know what to do with it. And we've got the internet now. We definitely didn't have that before. But, but, but mostly when people get into the 23andMe or whatever other Ancestry.com type tools, it's just for the hobby of it, you know, and kind of, I don't know, interesting party talk. Um, for example, uh, my wife has an aunt that got into this, this stuff uh, a couple years back. And she learned that on their family tree is a notorious, I want to say, 18th century pirate by the name of Henry Morgan, like Captain Morgan's rum kind of Henry Morgan. Henry Morgan, who came up with the, the pirate code that's named after him. So that just confirmed all the things that my middle son, Sam, always knew to be true about himself, his destiny, and his past. And he's obsessed with pirates. And once he, once he got that detail, he used to go up to his friends and say, hey, did you hear the news? This is a direct quote from Sam. Did you hear the news? I have pirate blood. <laughs> That's what Ancestry.com does for us now, right? It gives us some sort of cool fact about ourselves to, 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 to slip out at the right times in, in, in party talk. That was different for them though. I mean, they had actual things about their life that would change based on who their parents were, grandparents were, great-grandparents were, and so on all the way down the line. It affected their status. It affected their access to the temple. It affected their place in the community. And they didn't need DNA tests or the internet to know where they came from. They kept up with this stuff because it really mattered. So when Matthew, when Matthew goes into his list of names, they're right there with them. Even more than that, they'd be thinking, where's this going? Even more, they'd be thinking, who's coming at the end? How many of you kids out there watched the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade last week? Yeah, a lot of hands out there. Somebody described an ancient genealogy like this one as a kind of parade. You know, a, a parade like the Macy's one, it's gonna involve a whole bunch of different floats. And a, and a mixture of some that are old standbys, like that old turkey. It's been around forever. You know which one I'm talking about. I guess it's always at the beginning. And some new ones, you know, like the Baby Yoda one this year, chasing the little ball. Did you guys see that one? But, but what you know about a parade is that what people really want, what people are really, really waiting for, is the one who comes at the end. So when the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade is over, it's Santa Claus coming up at the end. And that means it's Christmas. And that means it's time to buy stuff from Macy's. 
this genealogy is like a parade. And a lot of it would have been super familiar to the people who were, who were first reading it. These names at the top especially would have been beloved and nostalgic. And Matthew starts with the high points. He's got Abraham in there. He's got Isaac and Jacob. He mentions Boaz and Jesse. And most of all, he mentions David. So far, so good. They'd be loving this parade so far. But from there, from there, the parade route takes a turn down a painful path. And his, name, his list of names starts to, starts to pick away old scabs. Maybe worse, starts to press salt down into deep and open wounds. From there, the parade winds through decline and civil war and idolatry and eventually God's judgment. Eventually, the deportation to Babylon when Israel lost its land, lost its king, lost its sense of, of a people in its own place and were forced to live as exiles under the authority and power of a, of a kingdom that didn't care about them. The names from that point on are mostly unknown to us. Figures that somehow connect back to David and Abraham, but, but without the power or the influence or the heroic deeds to think back on. And that's because these were dark times. This was their time. The first readers of this book, this was their time. But, but what would be at the end of all this history? Where is this going? Who comes last? Verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Can you see what Matthew is showing to them and to us? Through this list of names, can you see what he's doing? He's showing us that Jesus has a history. That, that Israel's history is, is Jesus' history. But it's even more than that. Matthew's claim here is, is way stronger even than that. What Matthew is really claiming here is that Israel's history was all about Jesus. It was all building to Jesus. Jesus is the goal, the culmination of it. God was working through all of that history to bring Jesus into the world. This genealogy that we've read is actually a pretty good summary of the whole Old Testament. And all of it builds to him. He's the one it's all about. Friends, it's not overstating things. Here's a quick bit of practical application for you. It, it is not overstating things to say that Matthew in this genealogy is trying to teach you how to read your Bible. He wants you to know that wherever you find yourself in the stories of the Old Testament, you find yourself in a story that's building you to Jesus. That's preparing you to understand him and why he matters so much. That's building in you a foundation for trust in him. And that's not because there's some hidden code that's here that you've got to learn through some sort of special seminary training how to unlock. It's also not because he'll be mentioned on the surface of the Old Testament. It, rather, it's because the, old, the whole Old Testament is a story that builds to his coming. Every twist and turn in it makes him more and more and more and more necessary. Matthew isn't the only one to read his Bible like this. Jesus, Jesus read his Bible this way. In another gospel, in Luke, near the end of the gospel, after Jesus has been killed and then has risen from the dead, Luke tells us of a time when he met with some of his disciples who didn't yet understand why he died in the first place. They didn't know they were talking to Jesus. And Jesus walks with them as they go along. And, and Luke tells us, this is a quote from Luke 24, that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, meaning Jesus, interpreted to them 
in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You see that? Jesus showed them how Abraham was about him and Isaac was about him and Jacob was about him and, and Aminadab was about him and Nashon was about him and so was Ahaz and Manasseh and all these guys. They were about him. The whole Bible is about him. Reading the Old Testament is, is like a treasure hunt for Jesus. Where Jesus is the prize that you can find on every single page once you learn how to look for him. This should also affect how we use our Bibles, friends. Not just how we read them, but what we look to them for. Uh, here's what I mean. The Bible is just packed with all sorts of different kinds of material. I mean, you've got stuff in there from histories to laws to poems to prophets. Zoomed out, though, pulling out above those trees to see the whole forest, what you see is that the Bible is one big story bound together by the love of God and his plan to redeem the world through his son. That's the story that Matthew summarizes in these names. See, in our culture, we're so drawn to technique, to things that we can do, to, to practical help that we can get for the problems we know we've already got. And sometimes we can come to the Bible as if that's what it, that's what it has to offer us. Teach me how to do something here. Give me a skill. Give me something with immediate practical payout and results that I can measure. As one author put it, it, it this, this, this tendency we have can make us treat the Bible like it's a big encyclopedia, you know, with, with, with entries on all sorts of different topics. And you just take what you're dealing with and you go to that encyclopedia and you try to find the entry for marriage conflict. Okay, marriage conflict. There it is. Give me all the verses that tell me about marriage conflict. When, when in reality, the whole Bible is a story that's meant to give us a whole perspective that then will absolutely have to do with how we have marriage conflicts. Not because there will be five different verses in there that tell you exactly what to do with that next conversation, but because you'll be able to put yourself and your spouse into the story of God in the world, a story that has real categories for sin when we put ourselves before other people, the sin that's underneath all of our conflicts, that has a category for amazing mercy and grace that won't allow sin to define who we are to one another, a category for, for, for God having an intent that he's working out in us over time so that in the end, we look as beautiful and glorious and righteous as Jesus. That's where I'm headed. That's where my spouse is headed. I need that story. I need that perspective to understand what to do with my marriage conflict more than I need five verses that specifically mention marriage. Does that make sense? The Bible's not an encyclopedia. It's a story that gives you a whole perspective on every part of your life that then your community helps you drive into the specifics of what you're dealing with. Matthew is teaching us here to read the Bible like that. And the last thing I'll say on this before moving on to the second thing Matthew shows us in this unusual little hook is this. If you're not yet a Christian, one of our most foundational beliefs as Christians shows up in this genealogy right here. Here's how one writer put it. One writer, one writer says, it really, really matters that Matthew's gospel doesn't begin with once upon a time. This is no fairy tale but instead begins with a list of names of real people who lived in real history, who were really confirmable, not just in the Bible, but through other ancient texts that mentioned them too. This is a family tree that's attested. And everything that matters most in this story 
Everything that matters most in what Matthew tells us about who Jesus is and what he did and what he offers to you, everything that matters most only matters if it really happened. A fairy tale won't do anything to help us with what's really wrong with us. We need a living, breathing Savior who broke into history. One who lived a life of real obedience where we have fallen short. One who died a death that was big enough to be a sacrifice even for all of my sins, which I have committed not in a fairy tale, but right here in this very real world. And we need a Savior who is really alive again, even though he really did die. One who lives now in a body as real as mine or yours and can offer, therefore, the promise that if we trust in him, we can live again too, even though we die. Everything that matters most to us depends on this stuff having really happened in history. Matthew knows that. And that's why he starts not with once upon a time, but with Abraham was the father of Isaac, was the father of Jacob, was the father of Judah. We're so glad that you've come here today so that we can talk more with you about this Jesus who we believe to be at the center of all of history. And there is nothing more important that you could do today than to evaluate who he was and what he offers, which leads me to point number two. All right, we've seen where Jesus comes from. He comes from God's history with Israel. But Matthew's also shown us what Jesus came to do. The central purpose of this hook, at its core, the biggest thing that it's trying to do is point ahead to what Jesus came to do. Matthew's attaching Jesus to the hope of Israel, not just its history, but its hope. And he's saying Jesus came to fulfill all God's promises. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to fulfill every single one of God's promises. Friends, right out of the gate here in verse 1, in this headline, he talks about Jesus as the Christ, as the son of David, as the son of Abraham. These are loaded phrases. And then in what comes next, the spine that holds up this parade of names, if you will permit me to mix metaphors a little bit there, this parade has got a spine. Every single vertebrae is, is, is a set of promises that God made to his people. That's the through line. Did you notice that the first batch of names starts with Abraham? That's verse 2. The next batch of names starts with David. That's verse 6. And then the last batch of names all come from that final period, those dark days of Israel's history, after the deportation to Babylon, when their people had no land and barely a people to speak of and no king to rule over them or protect them from their enemies. Do you see that? Those three pieces. You see the way he sums up the list in verse 17? calling attention to these divisions he's given us. All the generations from Abraham to David were 14. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14. Why is he making sure we notice these batches? Why does he draw our attention to Abraham, to David, and then to the exile? He's drawing our attention to these three batches so that we can see what God has promised to do and then can see in Jesus the one who will fulfill all of what God has promised to do. Take Abraham, for example. In the first book of the Bible, book of Genesis, at the end of yet another parade of names, another genealogy, at another low point in the history of the world, God comes to an old man without any land or children and promises that man that he'll make out of him a great nation that'll bring God's blessing to the world. Listen to Genesis chapter 12. 
the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I'll show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. Him who dishonors you, I'll curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This was the promise that made Israel a people. First batch of names involves that story after story after story in which God began to make good on this promise. His people did grow. God did bring them into the land he'd showed to Abraham. So fast forward with me to David, the next batch. Take David, for example. With David, God's promises get even more clear. Israel will be his people and Israel will bring blessing to the world in a very specific way. This is a blessing that will come to the world through the reign of a great king. Because in a world as broken as this one, guys, in a world so full of sin and selfishness, in a world where where those who are in charge are so often the worst offenders, there, there can be no peace without the power of a righteous leader to rule over us. One who is strong and decisive and able to defeat every enemy. One who is loving and selfless, who'd use authority to make other people flourish, not to pick them dry. The kind of leader who says, not, not, not the kind that, that we're so used to who say, essentially, by their actions, I matter more. I, I eat first. You get what's left over. But the kind of leader who says, my life for yours. No peace without a leader like this one. Listen to 2 Samuel verse, uh, chapter 7, verses 11 to 13. The promise to David. From the time I appointed judges over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. This is speaking to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I'll raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Here's a permanent king, a righteous king, a king who will come to make everything right. But then you got to fast forward to this next batch of names. No sooner had David come, no sooner has son Solomon taken Israel to the highest of heights, that the nation begins to spiral away from God and out of control. One king after another rejects God's ways and worships the gods of the neighbors and puts their own love for power above their responsibility to care for people. And it wasn't just the kings who were messed up in these years. Israel as a people followed them away from God over and over again. The prophets warned them. Still, they went their own way over and over again. And in this section of, the, of, of his genealogy, Matthew is bringing his readers face to face with the great shame of their history. A shame that absolutely lived on into their present. He was reminding them of all that they had. And of how far they had fallen. Of what they had once enjoyed and of just how much they had lost. And they knew they'd lost it all through their own disobedience as a people. Reading these names is a reminder that their greatest threat was never Babylon or Assyria. It wasn't the Philistines or the Egyptians and it sure wasn't the Roman Empire. Their greatest threat wasn't out there at all. But inside among them, even within them. Think of the exile, this deportation to Babylon time, 
as a huge sign hanging all over the promises that God had made to their fathers. Now what will happen? Look what we've done. What will God do? But in these years of exile, at the same time that Israel was forced to confront the the consequences of their own sin, in that exact dark moment, God sent more and more promises to them. Just as he'd made promises to Abraham and then to David, he sends prophets during the exile to make more and more promises of a greater David who would still to come, a new shoot off that, uh, off that stump of Jesse, a new beginning for Israel that would even be greater than everything they had known under Solomon. One prophet after another promises their sin wouldn't have the final word and one day they'd be restored despite their sin. But by this point in the story, those promises were made hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years earlier. Israel was back in their land, but they didn't own it. Some of the people were back, but they were a shell of what they had once been. They got a new temple built, but man, it was a shack compared to what they had known under Solomon. And perhaps worst of all, for 400 years, God had been silent. They hadn't heard anything from him. There's nothing sweet or sentimental about the setting for the Christmas story, as nostalgic as it might be for us. When John described the coming of Jesus and the opening to his gospel, he talked about Jesus as a light shining in the darkness. That only makes sense when that darkness is real and dark. He was a light of life and hope where there was only death and despair, but a light that the darkness couldn't overpower. Matthew right here in his genealogy is being a little less poetic than John was with his hook. Maybe a little more bureaucratic even. But he means to make exactly the same point. And his first readers would have known exactly what he meant. They would have known Jesus is the word we've been waiting for through all these silent years. Jesus is the fulfillment of all God's promises, the light that shines in the darkness of exile and oppression and shame and sorrow. He's the word that breaks the silence. Where is God, they would have been asking. Is he finished with us? Is it over? Have we blown it forever? And Matthew is saying through this simple list of names, no, never. We're going to spend the next several weeks looking at specific prophecies that Matthew quotes and that Jesus fulfills. I'm not going to go further into those details now because we want to leave some meat on those bones for the next three weeks. But I do want you to know this. Here's what Matthew's saying to you if you're a Christian. Nothing can stop God from delivering on every one of his promises to you. We can trust him. Not even our sin against him can stop him from following through. God is faithful and true. Even more, God can work through anything to fulfill his promises to you. If you're stuck in the middle of a building project, you know, hypothetically, uh, how do you know your contractor will follow through all the way to the end? It really helps to look at what they've already sunk into the project. It helps to look at what they've already gone through and know they're not going to just drop us now 
that's how God wants us to look at him and his promises, those that we're still waiting to see fulfilled. He's wanting us to see Jesus at the very end of this parade and to know, look what he sunk into this project. He had nothing more precious to give than the life of his own son. He gave them freely, willingly, by his own design, his own purpose, not under any kind of compulsion. Look at what he's invested in making good on all his promises. He's not going to leave you stuck in your sin when he's promised to conform you to the image of Jesus. He's not going to leave you with your broken heart when he's promised to wipe away every tear. And he's not going to leave you in the grave when he's promised to swallow up death forever and to give every one of his children a body as glorious as that of Jesus. This God never overpromises. He never underdelivers, and he always follows through. That's what Matthew's genealogy is put here to tell you today. Jesus came to fulfill all God's promises. And that good news sets up where I want to leave you this morning. I want to leave you with who Jesus came to save. This is good news, friends. Perhaps the most striking thing to me about this whole genealogy, and lots of other people have noticed this over the years, <laughs> because Matthew really wants us to notice this, is, is who it is that Matthew chose to include in his list of names. This is not a comprehensive list. It wasn't just as simple as like tracing together all the generations. He, he's leaving people out. He's crafting this for his own purposes as a writer, as a literary tool. He's framing it around these sets of 14 to highlight these promises that Jesus fulfills, like I said before. That means every name is intentional. Now, if you were trying to build a case for your guy, for your hero, that you want people to rally around, how do you think you'd choose which names go in the list? Uh, one writer that I, that I read this week talked about a genealogy as a kind of resume, especially like in the ancient world. Like what, what, this, what this genealogy is supposed to be doing is kind of like what a resume does for you if you want to go into a new job. It's a summary of your pedigree and your accomplishments and your skills. It's a, it's a here's why you should hire me type device. With your resume, you're going to pick out the best stuff, right? I mean, some people famously have even very, very badly embellished their resumes, taking stuff out that didn't belong there, putting stuff in that they didn't actually do. Because with your resume, you want yourself to look as good as you could possibly look. That's what it's for. What you would never do with a resume is put something on there that's, that's not impressive. Maybe even something on there that's, that's shameful. That you'd never do. But informing Jesus' family tree, that's exactly what Matthew does. For example, here's one, of the, here's one of the flashing, strobing neon lights that you're supposed to pick up on as you read through this, this genealogy. Did you notice the several women that Matthew included? That wasn't customary in an ancient genealogy to include women. Matthew's trying to make a point. He mentions Tamar in verse 3. Rahab in verse 5, Ruth in verse 5, Bathsheba in verse 6 before getting to Mary in verse 16. I know that doesn't seem unusual to us, but in the ancient world, it would have been very unusual and it would have led to readers thinking, huh, why did he do that? Why is he mentioning these women? And when you consider who these women actually were, it gets more eyebrow raising, not less. I mean, if you were going to put in women into this genealogy, you would think he would have started with, you know, the rock star women like, like Sarah 
Abraham's wife, Rebecca, Leah. He could have started there at the beginning, right along with Abraham. But no, at least two, maybe all four of the women he chose were Gentiles. They weren't from Israel. We know that about Rahab and Ruth. Tradition had it that Tamar and Bathsheba were also considered to be Gentiles. I mean, it makes sense that you'd highlight Solomon and all his glory and wisdom and power, but Ruth was a penniless widow from Moab and Rahab was a prostitute from Jericho. What are they doing in this family tree? And even if they were in here, why draw attention to it like that? Not to mention the fact, and this this takes the cake, that these women being in here highlights some of the absolute lowlights for Israel's heroic men. Mentioning Tamar reminds readers that Judah, the one through whom the promise moved along, fathered these two kids in this list by his daughter-in-law who posed as a prostitute to get him to do just that. And what about David? The one at the top of the heap, the shining star they long for, the one right at the center of this whole genealogy. How interesting that Matthew describes Bathsheba not with her name, but as the one, the wife of Uriah. David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. You get that dig? This family tree is a radically inclusive, countercultural mess. Why does Matthew make sure we know that? Why is this the way he hooks us into the story he's about to tell? Matthew gives us this list of names so that when you read through them, as odd sounding as they may be, and when you start to know a little bit about the stories behind them, you will start to realize Maybe there's a branch on that tree for me. Maybe that's a family I could actually fit into. Maybe there's a little room in that family tree next to Judah who slept with his daughter-in-law because he thought she was a prostitute. Or with David who murdered a loyal soldier to cover his adultery and have that soldier's wife all to himself. Maybe this is a family tree with room for anybody from anywhere guilty of of anything because what holds this family together isn't the accomplishments of the people who earn their spot here what holds this family together is the mercy of God the God who founded this family by telling them Exodus 34 that he is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Anybody can have a branch in this tree if they want one because nobody belongs in this tree but those who come in through the mercy of God revealed in his son Jesus. Jesus is the one at the end of this parade. Jesus is the only one through whom anyone belongs here and through Jesus anyone can belong, even you. No one knew this better than Matthew. Matthew was a notorious tax collector, a traitor to his people, an instrument of his people's oppression and exploitation. And Matthew knew from his own experience 
that if Christ could reach somebody like him and turn him into a herald of good news, Christ could reach anybody. That's why just a few verses later in chapter one, he describes Jesus, the end of the parade, as the one who will save his people from their sins. This genealogy is here so that you will know, friends, that on the backside of ruin you've brought on yourself, (laughs) there is hope for restoration and a brand new future through Christ. Let's pray now for the faith to grab hold of it. Father, we thank you for Jesus, who is all that we need, and for the invitation to come just as we are to be cleansed by him. We pray that you would give us this faith that we need. And we pray that we would get the encouragement we need for this week from knowing what you've already done for us through Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.